Welcome to Data Leadership for Everyone. I'm your host, Anthony Algman. Everyone needs to harness the power of data. There's a lot involved in making that happen, and this show is here to make it all a little bit easier. Think of this as an audio advice column for all your data and leadership questions. Our guest today is Sean Falconer. Sean has a lofty goal to make the digital economy safer, and he's doing so one API at a time. A former competitive programmer, entrepreneur, and expert storyteller, his many accomplishments include designing the software used to create ICD-11 at the World Health Organization, founding Proven.com, and leading developer relations teams at Google. He's also one of the co-hosts of Software Engineering Daily and the sole host of Data Privacy and Compliance Podcast, Partially Redacted. Sean, welcome to Data Leadership for Everyone. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks, Anthony. So we were chatting a little bit before we went live on the show. And it's just, we can't get enough of chat GPT and AI and all of these things that, you know, generative AI has really captured people's attention and imagination. And I'm really curious from your perspective, what are some of the things that we might want to be thinking about that maybe haven't been topics uh, that we've covered before, the natural things that people gravitate to? Yeah, I, I, I honestly like when... You know, for myself, when these kind of hype cycles and technology come up, I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know. Like, uh, I was super late to being like a smartphone adopter. Uh, I was, of course, super early to the internet. But uh, with things like uh, crypto and blockchain, I was never uh, really into that, even though there was, you know, a huge amount of hype around that in the last couple of years. And originally, when everything came, was starting to come out with ChatGPT, I was like, I don't know. I saw this with like Alice a decade ago with or maybe it was even longer ago, 15 years ago with, with Microsoft. And I was just like, people are getting a little bit you know, crazy with the hype right now. But then, uh, and I even did an episode on Software Engineering Daily where I think I was not necessarily down on the technology, but I was a little bit like, hey, let's, let's not go crazy here. This is not necessarily the revolution that everyone's is talking about. But as I've actually started to use ChatGPT and explore generative AI, more and more, I've become, I'm like on the other side of the fence now. I, I've been com convinced that really this is the, the uh, you know, next sort of big change in the way that people interact with technology. And you see these transformations that happen in the tech industry every decade or so. Even, you know, you go back to like mainframes, to desktop computing, to the home internet, to then the smartphone. And now I think we're on this new sort of path of essentially AI. And that's going to be the thing that every company, every consumer is just used to using in some capacity for, for quite a while. Uh, so I'm very excited about that. But that being said, I think that there are a lot of challenges um, to figure out, a lot of things to navigate, uh, just like there is in any sort of new type of technology that's coming out. Like you think about uh, Napster for people who were around when Napster <laughs> came out in the late 90s and this idea of moving, essentially being able to suddenly di you know, digitally download music. Every Consumers loved it, but the, you know, essentially the government and also the music industry took a long time to even understand what was going on there and then sort of react to it. And then there was all, like an overreaction in, in some respects. And I think we're kind of in the same place when it comes to these generative AI technologies. We've seen, for example, recently, Italy temporarily banned the use of ChatGPT. Samsung also had a ban on, on the use of ChatGPT for a variety of different reasons. It really comes down to... Uh, concerns over privacy and security. And I think that's one of the big central challenges that everybody who's interested in these technologies needs to kind of start to understand and uh, and get a hold of, especially if you're going to be building anything in this space. 
Yeah. Well, oh, there's so many things that we can talk about. And, and one of the things that we have talked on the show about is, is you know, the quality of AI being dependent on the quality of data. And certainly there's still a tremendous number of data challenges in, in many organizations. But I think that's that's well established. But one of the things that I'm thinking about now in light of what you were just talking about, is like we hear about like that consortium of people who have encouraged the um, that we, we, we stop developing AI until we can regulate it more, which is a pretty extreme thing for a, that kind of innovative group to to say. I'm curious, A, your thoughts on that particular um, news bite that has, has yeah. certainly raised eyebrows. And then two, what might that regulation or what, what kinds of regulation should we actually create from your vantage point? Yeah, I think it's unrealistic that the speed of innovation is going like to stop uh, essentially like put it be, be you're not going to be able to put a hold I think on innovation especially when there's so much potential like money involved uh, with with people being able to create products that really change the way that people you know do their jobs essentially uh, yeah. I just don't think you can really hold that back and even if you were able to hold that back in one particular country it's not going to be able to be something that is all over the world essentially and then you run into the situation where are you impacting innovation with your own country that's going to cost your country down the road while mm. some other country essentially is like hey let's just like uh, go full in on generative ai and, and you know these other technologies and win the race to you know whatever that that looks like from a technology perspective yeah just to, to jump in on that though it's like it's a pretty classic prisoner's dilemma problem right mm. where it's it's I would love for my competitors to take six months off, but I'm <laughs> yeah. probably not going to. And yeah. certainly if I don't think they're going to, then I'm not going to. And so like it very quickly resolves to a place where uh, clearly nobody's going to stop innovating, yeah. even though they say we should. So Yeah. yeah I and I think in terms of regulation, so, so I want to preface this that I am not a lawyer. Uh, and, uh, Nor am I. <laughs> yeah. So please take this with a grain of salt. But I think, you know, when we look at other types of regulations that exist around the handling of credit card information, the ha handling of healthcare information in the United States with like HIPAA compliance and so forth, like compliance really has so far been like a baseline for companies to, to adhere to from a security perspective and privacy mm -hmm. perspective. So, you know, if you're really, if you're sort of building for compliance and building for to, to comply with regulations, you're probably only you're only hitting that sort of baseline vector. You're behind the ball in terms of really uh, preventing things like data breaches and data leaks. Like that, the, the people who are sort of penetrating systems, taking advantage of, of different um, uh, companies' weaknesses in their, their security and privacy posture, you know, a lot of times, most of those companies are compliant. They're not out of compliance when those things mm -hmm. happen. So I think when it comes to data security and data privacy, we shouldn't be relating anyway for the regulatory bodies to say, like, you should do this. It, we should be doing these things because it's the right thing to do and that privacy is a fundamental human right and we should be doing uh, the right things for our consumers. You know, if you look at the steps that Apple has done as a company, you know, they've really led in a lot of ways um, uh, uh, as a like sort of privacy first company. And it's a big part, you know, I'm sure they have, a, it, you know, helps from a marketing perspective as well, but it's a key differentiator when you're using like an Apple product, they're putting privacy out there as, as a key differentiator. And they're not, they might be doing it for marketing reasons, but they're also, I think, doing it because they believe in those things as a culture of the company. And they're trying to protect their, their, their um, you know, the consumers of their products uh, from 
having these types of challenges where their their data is being taken advantage of. And that hasn't been the case really over the last 20 years. We've been in a place where I think we've we've kind of been in this uh, you know cowboy Wild West era of data where we haven't really thought about why are we collecting this information? What are we doing with it? Do we have the right you know controls and data protections in, in place? We just kind of collected it because we could. And then you know when these kind of problems arise where we end up with our consumer information getting leaked, then we kind of retroactively go back and like try to lock it down. But a lot of times that's uh, too late to, to make the, the right changes to, to solve that problem. Well, th- this is a whole terrifying kind of notion because are we on a path? And one might argue that it was bad enough with the internet and like tracking and ad stuff and, and privacy concerns around our individual data. But if you amp that up, you know, turn it up to 11 with the AI behind it, and are we just waiting for it to get so bad that finally a company with a shred of altru- altruism like comes in and says, <laughs> hey, maybe we went too far here. Let's let's rein it back a little bit. Like, that's probably not a good idea, right? Yeah, I would hope that we've learned from some of our mistakes. You know, there very recently there was the, a huge fine that Meta just received, the 1.3 billion uh, euro. And, you know, th- I think they're in a place where it's very difficult for them to fix some of the fundamental problems that they have from like a privacy perspective because they built their product, you know, now over 15 years ago and they scaled that massively and they weren't thinking about these types of things, um, you know, necessarily a protection of the data. Uh, and certainly GDPR ha- hadn't been even in existence when they were sort of starting, but it's kind of hard to unroll and like, like work back whatever sort of architecture that they built as a product to uh, even comply with things like you know data residency requirements and 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 there's more and more of those going around the world, and it but now when it comes to like we should be more aware uh, at this point that this is a thing that we need to navigate and understand, and but at the same time, the whole nature of how things like GPT models work is completely different than anything we've really encountered before. Because it's not like, essentially once an LLM learns, it can't unlearn. There's no row of information to delete. So even something like, oh, we accidentally got someone's personal information into the model. How do you roll that back? Like there's just, you can't even do it. At least, you know, it's hard for businesses to delete information today about a user because it essentially gets spread everywhere. But conceptually, they understand what is involved with doing that? Like, let's go track down all the places where this user's information is, all the backups, the log files, and we will delete that row of data. With an LLM, it's like you, like you know, like there's no way to do that. There's no way to essentially just delete that information. There's no way to unlearn it. Well, it, it seems like a corollary to the issue around provenance of where the uh, AI got its assertion from. Like, how do you track back to the particular places where it learned? Right. Because at some point, it doesn't even know how it learned. It's just like a human says, well, where did you learn that? My kids are great examples. Like, the kids come back and they start talking about something. I'm like, where in the world did you learn that thing? Mm-hmm. I ha- How did you... like?" That isn't something that gets covered at school. And then all of a sudden that happens. They don't know. I don't know where I learned it, but like you learn these things and and AI is going to be no different. It's going to be really interesting how we unravel that because you see very clear 
regulations in things like GDPR about, you know, the right to be forgotten and all that stuff. Well, what if the thing can't forget anymore? So that's a huge issue. The other thing that this scares me as well, kind of tying this to what we were talking about with the apples and the companies that are finally saying like, okay, we need to make some adjustments. It's kind of terrifying also to say, all right, we need to explain this to like legislatures and the legal system and, and how they need to make rules around this. Like, I know for a fact, like a lot of the people that are in those kinds of roles don't even do email very much yet. Like that's yeah. how are we going to explain this stuff to them and expect to get good regulation around that? Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, I think even if you look at the, you know, uh, from when like the Google proceedings happened and stuff like that and them trying to explain how, you know, search works to to Congress, you know, that was a very difficult conversation to have when you're talking, potentially talking to people who have really no uh, like te uh, uh, technology knowledge, let yeah. alone something as complicated as, as uh, essentially a neural network. And I think even as an industry, like I go to these different events and everyone's, you know, excited, of course, around the potential generative AI and there are everybody, the entire industry should like reacting and try, scrambling to try to come up with like, what is our plan for AI? But at the same time, even the people in technology don't have a deep understanding of what's going on right now. And even people who have deep expertise in in um, in, uh, in neural networks, like they can't necessarily explain why a model is producing the things that they do because it's just so complicated. There's so much um, you know math that's going on, and so many like uh, cycles of essentially building that model, fine tuning the model. Like like you were just talking about the source attribution. Like the model doesn't know. The you know the scientists or the people who are essentially behind the um, uh, the the design of the model of like uh, of training it they don't necessarily know how all these things work as well because you're si you're basically solving this really really huge complicated function with you know billions of inputs like there's no way that a person can kind of like map that to understand okay well this is what uh, I put this input in this is what the output is going to be there's just it's too complicated for someone to kind of have within their their understanding at one time, let alone mm -hmm. then go and try to explain it to people who have you know no grasp or understanding of what it's actually doing. Huh. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's 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 super complicated, and yet I I can't help but come back to say it, it, it as you were talking about that. I, I found myself thinking about. All right. Data science, right? Data science is comparatively in this case, I'm thinking of like people who come up with fairly advanced algorithms, but still writing them programmatically versus AI, which is just another level. Right. Mm -hmm. But if I think about data science and one of the biggest challenges that I've seen with data science is that you find really interesting stuff in data science all the time. And you may even reach some really interesting conclusions or some interesting recommendations. However, I think where data science has failed the enterprise or the organizations out there a lot of time in terms of their strategic relevance to the success of a business is that taking what that data scientist does and turning it into a viable business model is a very difficult thing to do. And I'm of two minds on this, and I'm curious where you land, is that on one hand, I see, well, with AI, it's going to be more of the same. We don't, we're still going to struggle with that same thing. But then the other side of me says, but maybe this is exactly what AI solves, is that mm -hmm. while it doesn't address the can you versus should you dilemma, it does help you very quickly 
connect things that a data scientist struggles with in terms of taking the abstract and connecting it to the very literal or the very operational business model versus the AI might be able to say, I'm going to root everything in what a viable business model is. And then I'm going to do analysis that's entirely based on that. And that's where I think, is this potentially solving that challenge that we've historically seen in data science? I don't even know if I made sense in what I just explained, but tell me what what you think. Yeah. So if I understood that correctly, I think the, the challenge you were saying about data science is it's hard sometimes to connect the insights to uh, a, you know, a viable business, essentially. Yeah. I think the things that AI is really good at is essentially solving like optimization problems. Mm-hmm. And because it can essentially take in way more inputs than a person could potentially sort of like process. So if you can essentially distill the problem down into like, here's all the like variety of inputs that I want this to be taken into account. And I want to be able to figure out by, you know, tweaking each of these inputs up and down uh, some, you know, fraction, running that billions of times essentially and figure out what is the optimal sort of model that mm-hmm. leads to uh, some version of success, then that's what AI is really excels at. And if you look at something like GPT, what it's essentially doing is figuring out based on, you know, billions of inputs, what is the next word in like the, the best word essentially in the, the to, to appear next in the sentence. So it's, it's, it's optimization problem. So if you can distill mm-hmm. things down into an optimization problem, AI is very, very good at that. And I think what, um, uh, from like a business sense, I think, maybe connecting the world of data science to the world of, of creating a business case for it. I think where things like GPT can potentially be good, good at is it becomes essentially a, uh, um, a, like a brainstorming partner for you, just like mm-hmm. it does when it comes to, to writing or anything like that. You can essentially feed it different inputs and it can come up with a variety of suggestions that even if they're not necessarily on their money, they might lead you, steer you in a direction where you're like, oh, right, you know, maybe this is the idea. Because mm-hmm. the whole thing is, you know, we become very uh, used to a certain like way of thinking, even a certain pattern of speaking and writing and so forth. And it's mm-hmm. really hard to kind of break out of that without having, you know, some third party, a friend or a colleague kind of come in and be like, why don't you think about it this way or try this? But even then, if they are, you know, have a similar background to you, work in a similar space, maybe they have the same job function, they're also going to be siloed in some way where they have, you know, they're basically closed off to, to d- different ideas. And the advantage of something like AI is it doesn't care like what your professional background is. Like it can essentially take in data from all over the place, which mm-hmm. could be a way to essentially create suggestions uh, and ideas that help you break out of this this mode of thinking and also even like from a writing sense adapt the way that you write because it doesn't it's not gonna maybe it can hit the tone but it's not going to use the exact same you know words and phrasing that you've written maybe you know thousands of different times so it can kind of make you uh create a you a situation where you have more variety and Mm -hmm. then lead you to a path that maybe you wouldn't have thought of yourself yeah, I, I like that from a, a corralling perspective. And certainly people are naturally, once something works, you tend to do it again. And that leads to patterns that are hard to break out of, right? right and yep. that I think is definitely something that AI could do. And what I'm also thinking is like, well, talk about a, something that's so literal 
uh, it, it, that it can say, like, if I have a certain resource constraint, like even something that's very broad, like language, right? Like there's only so many words that exist and that those can be input into the, the system to then be a constraining effect. And once you can constrain it somehow and provide certain parameters, AI can reduce that much faster than a, than a human can. And so I see a lot of potential there for being able to suss out things while still respecting constraints. So if it's, and as I kind of come back to that question around the data science side, is that what data scientists often lose is sight of what are the resource constraints in my actual organization and how do I filter that into my analysis? Because I don't know what that where that analysis is going. I'm, I'm pulling on threads, but mm -hmm. I have no idea what happens until I've pulled that thread enough to see, ah, oh, now I see what's going on. There's no way we can do this. The AI could do that, but a billion times faster. <laughs> and then rule out the ones that it clearly finds are not good. So it can pull so many threads so fast, it can quickly home in on the ones that are worth further exploration. I think that's really a powerful, especially with where the sophistication of these things are today. I think that's a very good tool as it's, it's a tool. It's not a complete solution at this point, but it will help a human do what a human does best by amplifying the things that a human doesn't do well. Would you agree with what I just said? <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Like we don't do like super large scale analysis well, and, mm -hmm. but that is something that uh, computers and also AI does very, very well. So it can sort of fill in the gaps of some of our, you know, the places where we're not as, as successful or we're not as, you know, naturally um, uh, good at, but you, it doesn't mean that it solves all the problem. You know, I think there's a lot of things that the the human, uh, essentially domain knowledge, contextual knowledge also needs to be taken into account. That's why I was saying that, you know, you can essentially use something like ChatGPT or other, you know, generative AI models as a way to sort of ideate on an idea, but mm -hmm. it's probably not going to necessarily nail the ultimate idea that you need, but it might lead you down the path where uh, that you weren't thinking about before and uh, uh, and provide essentially a suggestion that um, is interesting to you, but it, it requires you to be able to recognize that based on your context and based on your mm -hmm. domain knowledge and be like, okay, yes, this is the right one, uh, but I hadn't thought of that before. Yeah, it's kind of that the 80-20% rule, like where you've got, um, it, it'll get you most of the way, but not quite the entire way. Like AI is notoriously bad at like social cues. <laughs> like it doesn't know when something is just wildly inappropriate for things that it just didn't know. It's super, super literal. Um, I've, I've, I've called it like it's ultimate and book smart, but not street smart a lot of mm -hmm. time because it just... It can learn through its observation of other experiences, but that's a little bit different than experiencing it yourself. And that's one thing that AI can't actually do. It can it can observe, it can infer, but it can't actually experience. And so I think you have to. And, and I imagine that for all time, we're going to be uh, always there's going to be a, some link that AI can't do quite as well as a human. I think that'll continue to shrink. But today it's probably 80, 20, five years from now, it might be 99, one. I don't know, but it's, uh, it's definitely where it, I don't think it's possible to fully replace the humans, but can it like, you know, better than I do. <laughs> I, I think I see it more as, uh, the, having the potential to essentially make people five to 10 times more efficient than they mm. previously were, at least in, in what I'm seeing now. And even for the foreseeable future, like some of the, the fundamental things that I think some of the, you know, GPT based, uh, AI and write, you know, writing systems are doing is solving essentially like the blank page problem. So it's like, I need to write an abstract for something, or I need to, 
put together a blog post or I need to summarize a podcast or, you know, whatever it is. And if you're like, I'm not in a creative mood, I'm, you know, I'm not thinking straight, I'm tired. It can spit something out and it's probably not going to be perfect, but then you can sort of massage it. It's much easy, easier to take something and edit it into the, the, the version that you want than to essentially start from scratch. So I see it a lot as, as something that is going to make people efficient. And I, and I think we're going to see similar things. Um, we're already starting to see this with, with programming as well, with like um, GitHub Copilot. And I know a lot of people are starting to also use things like ChatGPT to help them write code. And if you can solve some of, so much of programming is a lot of just like pushing and pulling data. It's a lot of like repetitive tasks. If you can take that off someone's plate by having AI essentially fill in all that boilerplate, that frees people up to be thinking about deeper problems. And it not necessarily replaces them, but it transforms their sort of skill set. Suddenly, maybe everybody who's engineering in some period of time in the future, they're more playing the architect role of how do I sort of connect these different pieces together to create something that's unique and valuable. It's hard for AI to do that, but they can essentially supply a lot of the, the, the boilerplate code that today, for the most part, is being written by humans. Yeah, great point. I mean, I think about when I'm when I'm doing consulting, right? Like if you're doing a workshop, you're much better off throwing out your best idea, even if it's terrible, but give people something to react to other than just a blank sheet of paper or a blank white whiteboard, because it's hard to get that going. And AI can really propel that clearly. I mean, any kind of um, accelerator like that would be very useful. So even as a consultant, like there's things that you could do to just help facilitate the natural human process. And that's a big, that's a big win just there. I mean, how could your workshop become twice as effective? Yeah, I think it could. <laughs> if you're starting with, hey, ChatGPT came up with this, well, how do you react? And and go from there. I think you save yourself an hour, you know, so <laughs> definitely good. So in the last minute or two that we have, just what what's exciting to you right now? Like you're, you feel like a person who like gets out of bed, loves doing this stuff all day long. Like what is the thing that you first think about in the morning? Like what is the thing that you're most excited about in this space right now? I'm really, I think for me, like the big thing that I'm really excited about is the, is this um, like digital uh, interaction shift that I'm seeing. Like it feels like a paradigm shift in terms of how people are going to interact with technology. It reminds, you know, I went to high school in the nineties and that was sort of the introduction to the internet at home. And I would just remember even now, even though it was like 25 years ago, how excited people were and also sort of like scared or confused about what was going on at the same time. But there was just so, mo so much momentum and excitement over that. And businesses were like scrambling to figure out like, how do we get online? How do we uh, you know, adapt to this suddenly connected world? And I think we're in a similar place now with generated AI. But I think a lot, what we're going to end up happening in the next, you know, maybe five years is that like, as a consumer, I'm not going to care. Not, I don't need to know anything about GPT or generated AI or neural networks or anything, what's going to end up happening is my expectation of software or anything I'm interacting with is that it's going to be AI powered, but I just won't know that it's AI powered. Right. It's, it's just like it becomes the default. It's like, of course, it writes my email for me, or of course, it automatically responds to this thing. Like, and anything that doesn't do that is going to feel really, really strange. And, and like, it's like, uh, you know, being di uh, like trying to interact with technology from the, like a Walkman or, or something like that, or, you know, something where like it's not connected to the internet, like it's just, or it doesn't have a touch screen. Like all these things feel really foreign to 
people of you know a newer generation. And I think we're going to see the same thing essentially with with some of this um, momentum around AI. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I just I laugh sometimes when I think about like you can do more with a filter on TikTok than mainstream movies could do 25, 30 years ago. I mean, it's mm -hmm. amazing what we can do with what today is already just kind of basic AI, not even the advanced stuff, just, you know filters and, and that stuff that it just it, it is an amazing time and i and i would agree with you we're, we're on to something here that is foundationally changing it is as big as like the internet or the cloud maybe um you know certainly certainly internet of things i think is another one that has transformed not in the way they initially thought but it did transform things in absolutely fundamental ways and so with that we're basically out of time uh before we go what's the best way for people to either reach out to or find some more information about some of the stuff that we've talked about today sure so uh if you want to contact me you can find me on uh twitter or on facebook or sorry not facebook on uh, linkedin uh just look up my name uh sean falconer and then uh, if you want to learn more about uh, uh, GPT and also some of the things that we're doing at Skyflow in relation to uh, data privacy and GPT, we uh, recently launched a new product called uh, Skyflow GPT Pri Privacy Vault. And there's information on skyflow.com that you can look up uh, as well as a blog post written by our chief product officer that kind of goes into the details, both from like what are the concerns around uh, uh, GPT models in terms of, of privacy and then how are we addressing it at Skyflow. Awesome. Sean, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And this podcast is data leadership for everyone. But if you need some data leadership for you, I want to help. So send your questions to podcast at dl4e1.com or my phone number is 773-888-2077 if you prefer to text or leave a voicemail. You can find subscription links and all our episodes at dataleadershipforeveryone.com. And until next time, be good to your data, be better to your business, and be best to each other. Now go make an impact. <laughs>